Cryptique is a podcast that explores the paranormal, conspiracy theories, hidden history, forbidden knowledge, strange stories, and the unknown. Cryptique is a show for those of you searching for the truth. We want to bring you stories and accounts of encounters with mythical and fantastic entities as well as beings from far, far away and even conspiracies and fringe science. So join us as we discuss and explore topics with the goal of better understanding the mysteries that surround us every day. Welcome to tonight's episode of Cryptique. Please subscribe to the show via your favorite podcast platform and tell all your friends about the show. You can email case suggestions to crypticpodcast at gmail.com. That's C-R-Y-P-T-I-Q-U-E podcast at gmail.com. In tonight's episode, we discuss the topic of feral children, man beasts. We're going to talk about children allegedly raised by bears, wolves, monkeys, dogs, and even chickens. You heard that right, chickens. Rudyard Kipling's novel, The Jungle Book, tells the story of Mowgli, a boy who was abandoned by his parents and raised by wolves. While he was taught the ways of the animal kingdom, he never learned how to interact with other human beings. The story ends with Mowgli being brought to the man village, where he sees a pretty young girl about his age, and the reader is to assume he lives happily ever after. But the truth is often ugly, as we'll see in these tales of feral children. But don't worry, we'll end on a couple of high notes. Tales of love, the human spirit, and the ability to adapt and overcome. Just a quick warning, there are a couple instances of child abuse and neglect in this episode. Welcome to Cryptique. Kipling's famous tale later adapted into several family films by Walt Disney ends on an uplifting message about self-discovery and harmony between civilization and nature. However, few people know that it was based on tragic true events. All right. In 1866, the earliest recorded case of a feral child is Dina Sanichar. He was about eight when he was discovered lying in a cave by hunters in, and I'm going to butcher this, Uttar Pradesh. So I guess you can imagine being out in the woods hunting. I couldn't uncover what they were hunting for. I'm assuming bushmeat, probably some sort of deer or something like that. And you look into a cave and you see an eight-year-old boy lying in the cave. What goes across your mind first? I would assume that the boy was in trouble. That he was abandoned or hiding from someone or that something had driven him in there. And that this was a desperate situation. I agree. I mean, I definitely wouldn't think, oh, that he's lying in a den of wolves because he's part of the family. I would think, if anything, that he was running and hiding from wolves that were trying to get him. In any case, he was brought to Sikandra Orphanage in February of 1867. Do you want to tell him what the name Dina Sanichar means? Uh, The name Dina Sanichar supposedly is Hindi for Saturday, the day that he arrived. That's right. That kind of sucks to get a name and then they're just like, oh, we'll just name him for what day he got here. That would be (laughs) awful. Kind of like the Umbrella Academy. Just name him after numbers. Number one, two... (laughs) 
with the missionaries also called him Wolf Boy because they believed he was raised by wolves. And to me, that's kind of uh, disrespectful. I mean, if you were a missionary, I would hold you to a, a higher standard of morality. And just calling somebody Wolf Boy seems kind of derogatory and uncaring, I would say. Definitely not a modern sense of, I guess, sensitivity, understanding. True. But I guess that was 1867. He couldn't stand on two legs and was said to enjoy eating raw meat. And I did a little research, and apparently humans can eat raw meat if it's fresh from a kill. And there's stories of Native Americans where they are said to have eaten the heart out of a fresh deer kill without cooking it. So it is possible. I wouldn't recommend it. We are in no way responsible for you getting sick if you decide to try and eat raw meat. Yeah, I like my steak and burgers pretty rare, but even I used to get, you know, an upset stomach from time to time with that. So I can't even imagine completely uncooked. Yeah, you got to heat them up a little bit. You can have some pink in the middle, but (laughs) missionaries also said he would gnaw on the bones after eating the meat. They thought that it was to sharpen his teeth. I really don't don't know if dogs gnaw on bones to sharpen their teeth or they just have anxiety that they like to chew on things because my dog will chew on anything bones toys furniture occasionally yeah it's one of those things that dogs seem to do for different reasons sometimes i think they're anxious my brother has had two dogs in the last you know 20 years one was a bulldog and she would grab toys when she was worried about something you know, she heard a noise in the night and went to go check it out. She, she'd grab a bone or something. She would be messing with it, you know, kind of the way people fidget with things. But then my my brother's current dog, he's a mutt. I don't know exactly what he is, but he, he just wants to play with it. He doesn't seem to have any anxiety with it. When he's bored or tired, he just puts it down. But yeah, when he wants to, just when he's chilling and has some energy or when he wants to play he's got something so yeah i'm not i'm not totally sold on doing it to sharpen your teeth but maybe maybe i guess it's a logical somewhat conclusion that they came to yeah i guess it's the same thing like people do different things we all have our own ticks true you know different things that we do i'm kind of fidgeting my legs right now even though i'm not there's nothing wrong i've just had some soda today, so I'm a little hyper. <laughs> You're not scratching fleas or anything? Not at the moment, no. Awesome. <laughs> they said that Dina would first smell his food, and if he didn't like the smell, he would discard it. And I don't know about you, but I've never put food down for my dog that he discarded. Now, he does smell it, but I've never seen him turn anything away. I have. I've had dogs who turn stuff away, but it was usually vegetables. Yeah. Yeah. Usually vegetables, broccoli, things like that. If you, you know, if you're eating some kind of vegetable or fruit, a lot of the time your dog's sitting there like, what about me? And you give them a little bit of that and they just kind of sniff it and they're like, all right, I misjudged here. I don't want that. Well, if it's broccoli, you have to melt cheese on it. Then they love it. Same with me. <laughs> 
Even after 10 years of socialization, Dina didn't develop mentally, which is completely understandable. They estimated him to be about eight, and obviously they don't know when or where he was discarded or, you know, took up a residence in the wild. But you would think it's definitely informative ages and it would be hard to learn. You know, you think of everything that you do for your kids nowadays, just think of them having none of that, not even language around them and how they would develop. Yeah, and this is a theme that seems to continue through a lot of these stories. The idea of, you know, difficulty, if not outright impossibility of developing these people into sort of, for lack of a better way of saying it, like a functional member of society. Once they've spent their formative years in the wild or among animals. He did learn to walk on two feet eventually and wear clothes. I was just thinking about that, like wearing clothes would be so foreign and strange to someone that was used to just being naked in the wild. I mean, I have a cooling vest that I put on my dog sometimes when we go for a walk and it's really hot out and he fights it the whole way. He fights it when I put his harness on him. It would just be really strange, you know, to come out and people are like, hey, you have to wear these. Uh, but they say he couldn't communicate, but he did eventually learn to smoke cigarettes. Yeah, at least he's got the important stuff down. Clothes and cigarettes. <laughs> right, and I've, I wonder what his brand was. <laughs> we even see today, at least um, I saw a show where I believe it was in Vietnam at a at a zoo. People used to have cigarettes that they were smoking and they would throw them into an orangutan and he learned to smoke. And eventually they had to put up a different type of enclosure where people couldn't throw cigarettes into him because obviously they didn't want him smoking. Yeah, I think I remember reading stories about a bear cub that was adopted by some Russian soldiers in World War II and became their sort of mascot. And after the war, he he was in an honorary way made part of the Russian army and he went into this zoo and the soldiers that were with him would bring him cigarettes and things like that because he they taught him to smoke. I don't know if that's true, but that was the that was the story. So we like to get hooked on stuff and then get animals hooked on it too. Back in the 1860s, even the 1960s, people didn't realize how bad it was for you. Anyway, the missionaries tried gesturing by pointing at objects, but they said that Dina did not understand even gesturing, uh, pointing at an object, and they reasoned that obviously wolves don't gesture or point where if he would have been raised, or I say raised, if he would have been around monkeys, then a lot of monkeys do use gestures and they'll point at things. It, it is kind of a an arrow in the direction that maybe it wasn't monkeys that he was raised by or spent his time with in the forest. They said he learned to understand some words eventually, but never spoke. I'm assuming that he probably learned 
food, possibly bath. Anyway, he was described as having a low forehead, prominent teeth, and was described as restless and fidgety, like most animals, I think, would be. He may have had a developmental disability. That, unfortunately, in those days may point to abandonment because parents didn't understand that this was something that, I hesitate to use the word normal, but it is normal. It's something that happens from time to time. And they may have thought that it was a curse from one of the gods or that he was part demon. You know, I hate to say that, but that that's kind of a running theme in the stories we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah, people being afraid of somebody who behaves differently, looks different, something like that. I I, I noticed in the, the pictures of him, it looks like visually he doesn't look quite typical, let's say. I'm trying not to be offensive, but he doesn't look like a typical person. The look that he has on his face, or at least the details you can see in these really old pictures that aren't particularly high quality. It does look like it could be some kind of developmental issue because I'm not sure why being raised by animals would cause your features to change, especially your facial features. So the story goes, he was eventually joined by two other boys and a girl, the missionaries believed to have been raised by wolves as well, but I couldn't find any reports on how they interacted. You would think that they would kind of get along and just interact and socialize with each other in ways that they learned in the wild. But I couldn't find any information on that. Could you? No, no, I didn't. I found a lot of different stories about this person in particular from uh, articles that the History Channel had out, different blogs, even articles from like the BBC and other sources None of them really mentioned his interaction with other feral, or at least reported to be feral children. In any case, he died of tuberculosis in 1895, and he was believed to be about 30 to 35 years old. It's hard, I would imagine, when you come across a child that's been raised in the wild to know exactly how old he is just because of the way it looks because they may not grow at the same rate, you know, their bone density and, and their use of their limbs and joints is going to be different than a typical person. And they may not have grown in the same fashion. You know, they may have hunched backs and things like that, but it would be hard to estimate how old. So they, they estimated about 30 to 35 years old when he died. Dina was believed to be the inspiration for Rudyard Kipling's The Jungle Book. Stories popped up all over India of children being raised by wolves, but many believe the stories were made up by missionaries in order to gain media attention, thus inviting more donations to fund their charitable work. It's a little underhanded for a good cause, I guess. It's also exploitative if, you know, children with disabilities are kind of put on display and they say, oh, these guys were raised by wolves or bears or whatever. And people come and either pay money to see them or come to see them and are expected to donate some funds to the charity. And I think that scientists fall into that category, too, because if you're someone 
that examines a child and you agree that they were raised by wolves or in the wild or whatever, that's going to bring some attention to you too. And, you know, we all like attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I found an article, I think, by the Times of India talking about that in the last century there were i think 50 stories of feral children most of which were kind of shaky at best a lot of them believed to be untrue or partially untrue because of a lack of evidence or in some of the cases in some of the cases we're even going to talk about there are instances where you know one scientist comes in says one thing and another one comes in and says like no i don't really see the same evidence they're talking about or i think maybe some of this claim was fabricated or you know maybe their physical alterations due to their lifestyle aren't to the extent the other person reported and just leads to seems like a lot of people you know questioning whether or not this is really real or maybe some of them are real and overall most of it's a trend or like you said stories for attention or publicity all right, so our next story, I don't have a lot of information on. I don't know what you were able to find, but I just thought it was really interesting because they named the boy Baloo. And obviously, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the Jungle Book, and the bear in the Jungle Book is named Baloo, which means bear. The boy was initially thought to have been fostered by a bear. And I've heard one other story similar to this of a boy in one of the Carolinas that disappeared for a few days. I believe he was about six years old. He kind of, you know, ran off and got lost in the woods and told his parents that a bear showed him where to sleep and kept him warm. And uh, we'll get into Bigfoot stories on another episode, but a lot of people believe that it was a Bigfoot. It wasn't a bear because a bear wouldn't take a child in and help them survive. Anyway, uh, he was found on a hunting expedition in the Sultan Pur, or Sultan Pur, again, I'm going to butcher these words, forest in India. Uh, he was given to the Bethany Sisters Christian Mission and then sent to Prem Niwas at Lucknow, which was Mother Teresa's mission. So I thought that was kind of interesting. So I did find a similar story about a boy called Sh- Shamdio or Shamdio who was a wolf boy found in 1972. This comes from a website called homegrown.co.in. And it talks about a feral boy who has multiple stories about him. that are supposed to be about the same person. He's also referred to as Ramu. And I think I saw that name, that name and the Baloo name. He was called uh, Baloo in some, Ramu in others, Shamdio still in other stories. Uh, There was an L.A. Times article by Elizabeth Bumiller from 1985 that tries to go through the authenticity of the story. But the boy was found living in northern India with uh, wolf cubs around 1976. They believe he was four years old at the time. And he was found with matted hair. His nails were sharp like claws. And by all appearances, it seems to have been raised by wolves. Uh, he was rescued. You know, I, I say rescued and because a lot of these people, they seem to be sort of worse off once they're rescued. But he did learn to dress and bathe, but he did not learn to speak. Um, the This article even says that he would sneak out and raid chicken coops at night. And a lot of people seem to be 
skeptical of the story and and again made claims that he was probably just had some sort of developmental issue but this claims that the times of india had printed a front front page obituary when he died at prem nivas a home for the destitute run by mother teresa's missionaries of charity so that's interesting it's another baloo at that same facility there's another story about the same person that says that uh, a farmer found this child. He was coming home, going through the woods on his bike and stopped when he saw this kid about four or five years old running on all fours among wolf cubs. He captured the boy, brought him home, said the kid put up a fight, would scratch and howl and bite and try to get away. And that he spent a while trying to wean him off of raw meat, but eventually gave up and sent him to that same uh, missionary. And that while he was there, you know, he received this Balu name. So I, I wonder if some of it is confusion because there are, there are sort of overlapping stories and similarities that seem too similar to be completely coincidental. And that kind of lends itself to urban legend too. The story that I have on Balu here is that when he was sent to the Prem Niwas, he was renamed Pascal because he was sent close to Easter and the Jewish Passover. He was initially hostile and pounced on other residents at the mission. He liked rice and dal, which is an Indian dish. I don't really know a lot about it. If you're that interested, you can Google it. He eventually became friendly with his peers and not much else is known. I just thought this short story was interesting because they chose to name him Baloo and he was taken to Mother Teresa's mission. It is interesting, yeah. Now, I also found another story about a boy named Ramu, and the one that I found was from 1954. And it's very possible, you know, being that it's India, we don't know what names are popular. Ramu could be like Michael or Stephen or something in India. A feral boy was found wrapped in a dirty cloth at Charba railway station in Lucknow. And going back to what you said about being rescued, he ended up confined at a government hospital for 14 years. And he was given the name Ramu, which means Lord Vishnu. And going back to what we talked about with scientists, he was examined by Sir Edward Philip Manson Barr of the London School of Tropical Medicine. Barr stated, quote, beyond any doubt, the boy was raised by animals of some sort. There is no hope of humanizing this creature, which is sad. And there was another scientist, uh, Jim Corbett, I believe, that totally went against that and said that there's no way this boy could have survived without vaccinations and surely would have been torn up by the wolves. But Barr said that he was raised by animals of some sort, so it doesn't necessarily mean wolves. But he also said Ramu's body structure was normal, but there was severe demineralization of his bones, particularly in his lower limbs. And with a rich diet, he grew and gained weight. So they were able to kind of nurse him back a little bit. Basically, if you're just eating raw meat, you're probably not getting the calcium that you need. And, you know, theoretically, if you're raised by 
wild dogs or wolves, they may be able to get into the bones and chew up the bones a little bit and get some calcium from that. But a human wouldn't be able to bite into a bone, most likely, and kind of get access to that calcium nutrient, which would lend itself to the demineralization of his bones. It says that he eventually gained a rapport with his attendant and enjoyed bathing. He never showed signs of understanding human speech. But then they During the last few years of his life, he had increased epileptic seizures, lost weight, and died in 1968. We talk about developmental disabilities, and epilepsy was understood in first world countries, but, you know, maybe back then in India, uh, his parents could have thought he was possessed or he was a demon or something like that, and that may have been what caused them to kind of discard him. Epilepsy plays an important role in several of the feral children's stories, and it played a role in a lot of exorcisms. From the research, I found that there's stories of what is believed to be epilepsy that go back to Greek times, but it had been officially identified by 1873 in Europe. But in third world countries, you know, even even up to this day, they still believe in witchcraft and black magic. And I'm not saying they're wrong, but epilepsy has been identified. And we can say that if someone has a seizure, it's a seizure. It's not a possession or a black magic or a demon or something like that. It, it just is what it is. All right. So the next story is just a quickie. Two wolf girls named Kamla and Amia were discovered in 1920 they were allegedly rescued from three wolves in the forest of West Bengal by the Reverend J.A.L. Singh and were believed to be about eight years old. So in this story, they were allegedly in the company of wolves when they were rescued. Amia died after a year at the mission, but by 1927, Kamla, under the care of the Reverend, retained a vocabulary of about 45 words and was able to put short sentences together and even sang occasionally. So either that means that he did a wonderful job, or it's also possible that maybe they were a little bit older when they were discarded or left in the wild or ran away or whatever story put them in the company of the wolves. Yeah, this is one that I also found a, a couple of these I found in a few different places because a photographer named Julia Fullerton Batten did a series of photographs of feral children or recreating, you know, these reported uh, appearances of feral children. So they were mentioned in a couple of BBC articles and a few other places. And this was one that I found in the account that I found. It said Kamala was believed to be eight years old while Amala or Mila was believed to be about one and a half, but does state that they were found in a wolf's den by Reverend Joseph Amrito Lal Singh. Uh, the Reverend was said to have hidden near a tree where the girls had been spotted previously, and when the wolves left, he saw them come out, and he reported that they looked hideous, far from human, ran on all fours, um, had a lot of trouble trying to rescue them and bring them back to civilization said that they growled tore off their clothing wouldn't eat anything except raw meat and that the tendons and joints in their arms and legs were shortened to cause them to look physically deformed and that they were very calloused on their knees palms and they had like sharpened teeth 
they also report that their senses were heightened. This is something else I've found in a lot of these raised by wolves ones. You know, it doesn't seem to come up in the ones where they were raised by, you know, monkeys or chickens. <laughs> but a lot of these stories report that children raised by wolves have senses heightened beyond what a typical person would have. And I, I found the same thing as far as the other girl dying. Amelia died within a year following their capture um, and that Kamala did learn to speak a little bit, walk upright. Um, but this is where we get into one of these things where there there's some controversy because Professor Robert M. Zing from the University of Denver wrote a series of letters back and forth with this reverend who found these girls and even wrote a book with him called The Wolf, uh, Wolf Children and Feral Man which was criticized to the point where Professor Zing was dismissed from his academic position and has never taught again. So, but there are essentially other books. There's one called The Enigma of the Wolf Children from 2007 that describes the in detail how uh, French surgeon Serge Arole concluded that most of Singh's claims were a lie. And then according to the medical records, the girls didn't have any of these anomalies, the exceptionally calloused knees, the hideous features, and the sharp teeth, shortened tendons, you know, these things that made them look hideous and far from human, as the Reverend had initially described. That they didn't have any of that stuff, but did say that they appeared to have a neurodevelopmental disorder. That makes sense. Now... In later episodes, we'll get into fringe science and some conspiracy theories, but it seems to me that if you go against the narrative of accepted science and history, a lot of times you get blackballed. And I would hate to see that happen in this case, but it is something that I think about a little bit. I don't know, maybe they, for whatever reason, in their minds, it would be impossible for a child to be raised in the wild. So they didn't want to put that out there. Uh, we saw earlier where a scientist said that they could not have possibly survived without vaccinations. And sometimes, I guess, if you go against mainstream science, you get blackballed a little bit. But that's neither here nor there. We have no reason to believe that Reverend Singh lied about anything. But we, you know, we have very limited facts on the story as well. And it could have been the same situation where he wanted to get people to come and view the kids and get the donations that go along with it. What do you think? I really don't know. It's it's really hard to tell. It could be a thing where it's trying to get donations. It could be something where they're trying to sell books. Because here we're talking about a couple books. You know, there's a book called Humanimal, a project for future children, based on this story from Reverend Singh. The French surgeon that I talked about wrote that book, Enigma of the Wolf Children, and uh, Robert Singh and... The Reverend wrote Wolf Children and Feral Man. So all of them had a financial interest in reporting some version of the story and potentially contradicting each other. You know, if you read one book that says one thing and there's another that says exactly the same thing, what are the odds that you're going to read that? But if one reports a story, 
the other tries to confirm it, you might read both of those. If another one comes out that tries to refute it, you might read that as well. There's a financial interest in, I don't know, maybe making this more confusing than it needs to be. And it is also a story that's, you know, 100 years old now. They were found in 1920. So it could be one of these things where, you know, it's just so long ago. You know, it's like the telephone game. All these different stories relayed by different people and different sources, you know, kind of changed and twisted to borrow a phrase from you to to fit a certain narrative it was reported that her intelligence never rose above that of a three-year-old but you know if you're found out in the woods raised by wolves at eight years old and you eventually learn 45 words and you can put some sentences together and even sing sometimes that's pretty impressive to me yeah and i had read that she died of kidney failure in 1929 that what they think was the age of about 17. So just another one of these things, you know, kids rescued from these situations don't seem to fare particularly well. You know, with the first one you talked about from 1867-ish, he had tuberculosis, but I, I kind of wonder a little bit, would he have fared better in the wild as opposed to being around civilization? Greetings, Cryptique fans. Do you like what you hear? Do you like being scared? Maybe you should check out my other podcast, Exploring Evil. Delve into the depths of depravity with lesser-known serial killer cases and unspeakable acts. Some bizarre, some twisted, all evil. I even have a news update on the Slenderman case and the Nexium cult court appearances. Oh, and they also finally solved the Zodiac 340 cipher, and I tell you all about it. If you have a taste for true crime, Give Exploring Evil a listen. Hey, my name is Ryan. And I'm pretty sure I'm Joe. And we are the hosts of Movie Hell, a podcast all about movies and pop culture. We're two buddies who talk about this stuff anyway and wanted to share our own madness with all of you. Yeah, we have these discussions anyway and rant and rave about movies, TV, and pop culture in general. So why not share it? The objective of Movie Howl is to bring you reviews and discussions of flops to avoid, new stuff to see, and hidden gems that might end up being your new favorite. Whether you're looking for that perfect movie for Friday night or wondering if anybody else found Mr. Nobody as unsettling as you did, I'm sure there's something for everyone to enjoy, and if not, let us know and we can always learn and improve. Ah, boy, do we have room to improve. You can listen to Movie Howl on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and pretty much anywhere else fine podcasts are curated. Our next story is about the monkey boy of Uganda, and this is a verified case. The boy survived for years in the bush and was raised by vervet monkeys. There was a 1992 report of a child living wild in the forests of Uganda. He was reportedly covered in fur, moved and sounded like a monkey, and was found in the Bombo Loro Triangle. One thing that I found interesting is this was during the Ugandan Civil War and whole villages would hide in the forest when they would hear gunfire because of the tragedy that would take place. They would cut women's hands off and, and things like that. So the whole village would retreat to the forest until the uh, threat had passed. He was found by a woman named Millie Suba and she was out collecting firewood and saw the boy 
she told her husband and they went to check it out. And her husband, Benedict, is interviewed by an anthropologist named Marianne Ohata. And he says that he found the boy and the monkeys were trying to fight with him to protect the boy. And he threw sticks at them to fend them off. The boy's face and body was covered in hair, which may seem strange, but you know, when you're a, a child, your body can adapt. And I've certainly seen people at the pool covered in hair, not generally children, but you know, this is what Benedict told her. His wife thought it was a monster. Eventually, he convinced her to go back and they they rescued the boy again rescued as a uh, term that we use so they rescued him and brought them back to the village and they shaved the boy's face and body presumably to try and make him look more more human apparently he was covered in scars as well benedict said he couldn't drink from a cup and refused cooked food but he ate bananas no joke. So they used bananas to nurse him back to health. He was uncontrollable, as you can imagine, from somebody that lived in the forest with monkeys for several years. Word got out, and villagers thought it was a demon, and people came to see him. As they put it, people came to see it and wanted to kill it. What do you think about that? I'm interested in this story for a couple of reasons. One being the, uh, the kind of correlation that I think you mentioned of the woods and safety, you know, the run and hide and, you know, him kind of being drawn to that and then being drawn to these monkeys that helped him and protected him, you know, and then through his life, as we're going to get into, he, he wants to go back. He's kind of drawn back to the woods to the forest you know because it's it's a safe place for him you know like most people when they're young when something's going wrong they just want to go home you know that feeling of wanting to go home and for this kid and probably a lot of other kids at the time when they were going through this sort of situation if that's the safe place that's where they want to go so all that follows but uh i'm i'm a little suspicious of the face and body covered in hair thing i'm not really sure well to be clear what was described is not a, a boy covered in fur like you would think of a dog or a monkey covered in fur but more like fuzz that had grown out kind of like if your arm hair migrated up to your face yes okay yeah he was covered in hair not not like a monkey but like a hairy human would be hmm i guess i can buy that I've known people that have, you know, if you see them in the right light, they actually have fuzz all over them. I'm thinking of one right now. There's a girl who I never, I knew her for 10 years and I saw her in the, like the right light. And I realized she has this like fine hair everywhere. Well, you can't see, you can't see it, but, and I'm sure I do too. I probably never noticed it before, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what, what being in the forest with monkeys would do to make that hair more prominent but like you said it might be an adaptation that the body's just somehow responding to greater exposure to the elements and kind of ramping up you know it's not just this little fuzz that you can't hardly see it's becoming something a little bit more substantial and if you don't think you're covered in hair that's part of being a mammal some remembered the boy and said his name was john 
and word got back to John's father who came to visit him. He's not a great guy. John's father saw him and left the boy behind because he didn't want him. So that's traumatic in itself, I would imagine, being turned away by a parent, especially as a child. Yeah, but I didn't find anything if John had any response to that. Did you? No. Response to his father coming there and seeing him or being abandoned again. It was just kind of stated in a factual way that the, you know, the the person they believed was his father showed up and just kind of was like, well, that's that looks like your problem. And then left. Pretty much. Yeah, that was um, stated by another villager. It didn't come from John's father and it didn't come from John himself. John's father lived in the village of Zinzi before he ran into the bush. The villagers said that the boy's father had committed suicide because of what happened to his son. And there were no details on how he committed suicide or that there was a suicide note or that he told anyone that he was doing it because of what his son had turned into. That was just kind of the assumption by the other villagers that that had kind of uh, been a point of shame, maybe. Yeah, I think so. John's mother was killed by a snake bite. So John was left at about four years old with his dad. According again to the other villagers, John ran away from his father because he was afraid of him and abused by him. And he used to get beat up by his father constantly. When the boy left, he was only four and his father reportedly never went out to find him. He just left him to fend for himself. You know, at four years old, I don't remember being four, but having kids, they would be traumatized if, you know, they were crying or something and you didn't go to try and help them. I believe they would feel abandoned and it would be a terrible experience. So apparently being around eight when he was found, he allegedly survived in the bush for, you know, about four years. And he was sort of adopted by a troop of vervet monkeys and ate what they ate and mimicked their behavior. And I was able to find some research that said that humans can eat just about anything a monkey can eat. And the boy adapted, survived, and overcame. He would later state that they threw food down to him. And I'm sure he would see what they were eating, be it leaves or even insects. and eat those things too, because, you know, what else are you going to do? How irritating would that be to not be able to climb the trees with everybody else? It's like permanently being at the kiddie table. Yes, that would be awful. As a human, you need contact. You need touch. You need hugs. You need love. And if you don't get it, that's going to kind of stunt your social growth. After his rescue, the boy was brought to an orphanage called New Mamoga Memorial School. And in an interview with the headmaster, they said the boy was between 7 and 10 when he was brought to the school. He didn't stand, he squatted like the monkeys, and he screamed, cried, and used gestures to try to communicate. So again, that goes back to monkeys using gestures where wolves obviously don't. The other children and teachers were scared of the boy, of course, because obviously the children would be scared because 
he's like a wild animal and teachers are people too. They understand, you know, probably he was put through a lot of trauma and understood why he acted the way he did, but you can't help it if you're scared. You're either scared or you're not. And it would be pretty scary to see a person acting like an animal. Yeah. And it's also a thing of unpredictability. You know, I think that's why people are really afraid of anybody who's acting in some atypical way. You know, if you see like years ago, I was walking down Del Mar and I saw a guy standing in front of a window, very close to a window, pointing you know, jabbing his finger in the air at the window and yelling at nobody. I mean, he was just talking to a window. He wasn't talking to anybody behind the window. He was just talking to the window. I have no idea why. And I wouldn't say that fear was the response, but there was, and I could see it with everybody else that was kind of walking around this person. It was like, you don't know what they're going to do. You don't know what's making them do that. So you don't know how they're going to react to you if you're like, hey, man, what? Why are you so upset at that window? <laughs> like they may have some good reason. Maybe they are yelling at somebody in there and that person's not acknowledging them. So it looks like they're just talking to a window or maybe he is just talking to a window. Like who knows? But yeah, when you have somebody acting in such an unusual way, you know, I think it's a pretty natural reaction to be at least standoffish about it. Like I have no idea what this person's going to do or, or if they're, you know, used to sort of their vervet society, like, you know, what, what should I be doing or not be doing? You know, what's going to set him off. And in the case you're talking about with the guy pointing at the window, you would probably assume drugs or mental illness and the unpredictability can quickly swing to violence. At least that's where my mind would go. Oh yeah. He was not happy with the window. He was very upset with his window. <laughs> so the teachers at this school, specialized in trauma, but I, I don't care if you, you know, spend your whole life going to different psychology classes, courses, presentations, engagements, whatever, you're probably not going to come across any rules or guidelines or advice in dealing with someone who was raised by wild animals or is acting like a wild animal that's not based on drugs or mental illness. And if they knew that this boy was raised in the wild and wasn't high on something and they didn't believe that he was schizophrenic or something like that, they would have no experience or skills in dealing with that. They said he would scream when they tried to bathe him, which probably re-traumatized him every time they tried to give him a bath. I mean, obviously, you know, you have to maintain hygiene and you can't just have someone in your care that isn't taken care of, for lack of a better term, with bathing and hygiene. And it's a shame that it probably did traumatize him repeatedly when he was getting a bath. So John never spoke during his time at the school, but was able to relearn to walk and run, but kept trying to get back to the bush where he felt safer. So from his early years, when villagers would flee to the forest to avoid gunfire from the Civil War, they ran to the bush for safety. So he learned that when you're threatened or afraid, 
that's where you go, whether it was the war, his father, or the school. So that goes back to what we talked about earlier, that that's where you go for safety. My dog runs to my daughter's bedroom and jumps up on her bed every time he gets in trouble for getting into a trash can or something like that. That's his safe spot. And I think, you know, humans have that too. You know, we like to go to our bedroom and cover up and turn the TV on, or we have a chair we like to go to or something like that just for comfort. They eventually sent him to another school in Masaka where he couldn't just run to the bush where, you know, where he was discovered when he was scared. And I think the thought was that maybe even if there was still forest around, it wasn't forest that he was familiar with. So in the research, we found out vervets are smart, expressive, and social, and experts think they would accept him into their troop because they would see that he is helpless. And again, he would see what they ate and probably, or as proven out later, even shared with him to stay alive. But one teacher in Masaka was able to win his confidence, and she was able to teach him language slowly. Her name was Daisy, and when she left to go to Kampala, she took John with her. John Sabunya was now his name. So Daisy's kind of a hero in this story. She wouldn't give up and vowed to teach him to wash, talk, and even write. She was interviewed, and she said she loved John, and love is what changed him. She treated him like her own son. Yeah, I think that's what you'd have to do, even if it sounds a little hallmarky. You know, it's it's the right way because it's how you would develop naturally as a kid. She said it took her three years to teach him to speak, and his first words were Auntie Daisy. So that's pretty cool. Just like a kid will say mom or dad first, usually, or mommy or daddy. His first words after being taken out of the bush were Auntie Daisy. So we talked about we're going to have some stories of triumph. John now lives in Kampala with his guardian, Paul, and John was interviewed. And in the video, John said the monkeys threw him food to eat. And believe it or not, John is now a street musician, and people come to hear him sing on the street. And I have actually seen video of this. John now likes to talk about the monkeys and says he loved the monkeys and they loved him. He says he was part of the monkeys' family and they gave him protection and they even came down from the trees to socialize with him. So that's good news. He wasn't completely alone. And he doesn't say that they came down and snuggled up with him or anything, but they did come down and socialize with him. And his dream is to one day own a farm in his home village of Zinzi, where he can be close to the monkeys that saved his life. And I didn't find anything that absolutely confirms this, but I did find in my research that at least as of the writing of this article on Erbo, uh, which is May 1st of 2018, it says that he is currently touring in the UK with the 20-member Pearl of Africa Children's Choir. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, so I, I saw the same stuff you found. This was This was one that mentioned this, so it may be that he was doing some kind of street performances and got recruited by this group. But yeah, it's it's a lot better than most of what we found from other places, you know, with the two girls who were raised by wolves that, you know, one of them died within a year. One of them died at the age of around 17. 
you know, we're dying of tuberculosis or being stuck in some government facility for 14 years. This is a, a pretty good story, actually. And a lot of it may just have to do with the fact that it was monkeys. Maybe it points to the girls actually being raised by wolves or living with wolves. And that's what stunted them. Whereas being with monkeys, primates that uh, behave closer to humans, that's what you get. Yeah. I've heard of people, you know, visiting some of these places. You, you see videos all over online where monkeys are basically jerks to tourists in different parts of the world. And I've I've heard people talk about kind of empathizing with them a little bit and trying to go out of their way to like be a little nicer to the monkeys. You know, maybe not in some of these spots where you see them just like run up and grab food and run away. There's an interview with somebody where they were just talking about like, well, I just realized how I would feel if somebody was staying here and I, w and I was in the monkey's place. So I did these things and then our stay was a lot more pleasant because they quit, you know, screeching and doing whatever they were doing, you know, because they weren't as upset anymore. You know, it's one of these things where they're close enough to us that you can have some empathy and you can understand their behaviors a little bit more than you would with a wolf. The gestures are sort of similar, you know, pointing in the idea of implied lines. If you point, a person's going to look at where you're pointing. A dog or a wolf is going to look at your finger. And science believes they know how smart different animals are. But if you can't get in their head, you don't know what they're thinking. Yeah, I don't know that I buy that. That they can just know. Because I've seen, I don't know, a buddy of mine who had a cat. You wouldn't think cats are that smart. Because cats act cool. They act like they know what's going on. But I've also seen them just run headlong into like glass doors and the corners of walls and things like that. But I had a buddy who had a new baby and they had a cat. And the baby was like pulling on the cat, like messing with it. And the cat just went bop and just smacked it with its paw. But claws in, you know, it knew. Like in dealing with kids, I've seen a lot of instances where cats, they know enough to know, you know, you don't claw the baby. You know, it's very much like the cat thinks, okay, this isn't, you just need to learn not to do that. I'm not going to try to like rip you apart, <laughs> which is what happens when you're big like me and you do something a cat doesn't like, <laughs> they just latch on. In my mind, and in my opinion, it's impossible to know how intelligent something is, animal or human, unless you can actually communicate with it. I have worked with people that just can't talk. But boy, when you teach them how to use a computer, an iPad to type out their feelings, you find out they have the same thoughts as you, the same dreams, the same desires, the same fears. They just can't say it. You can only express so much with pointing and gesturing. But a young man that I work with just started typing. He he was able to uh, not just type out words to spell them, but recognize, you know, like if you're typing on an iPad per se, you'll start to type a word and then there'll be three words or whatever that pop up at the top of the screen where you can just select the word. And so he knew that when he wanted to type the word the, he would just hit the T and then the would pop up and he could just tap the word. And it was amazing to find out that he knew he understood everything we talked about. 
he was able to express himself on the iPad and, you know, people had just given up on him and thought, oh, he doesn't understand because he can't talk to us. And I don't know. It, it's just, it's hard to say what, what an animal knows or, or doesn't know if you can't communicate. All right, let's move on to the dog girl of the Ukraine, Oksana Malaya. She was said to be wild, walked on hands and knees, and behaved like a dog. And there's very famous footage of her doing so. Legend says she was nursed by the dogs and even ate dead animals. Records indicate that Oksana was removed from her family as a toddler. Newspaper reports said that the girl was tied up, but a neighbor of her, as a child, denies that any of that took place when she was young. But her parents drank a lot and didn't take care of her, and she goes so far as to say that she remembers seeing Oksana lying on the floor with a milk bottle covered in flies, and her mother was never around. She was taken from her family because of the way she was neglected. So when did she start acting like a dog? Yeah, in my research, what I found, the the version of the story that I found was that her parents were negligent and were alcoholics and just didn't take care of her. And uh, that she was often left outside in the cold and would kind of survive by crawling into this kennel and keeping warm with these dogs. And that that's kind of how she was, you know, that that they sort of became her family since her parents neglected her. I should say that this story does take place in the Ukraine. And when it takes place, uh, it was part of the Soviet Union. Another neighbor verified that the famous footage was Oksana, but she never saw her act like how she was in the video. She was eventually sent to Teramok an orphanage and there's a file from the orphanage that says she was there from September of 1987 to August of 1991 and in an assessment said she's not developed in social skills or hygiene and has no attention span she is aggressive in play has no friends and rocks herself to sleep so that's pretty sad Unfortunately, orphanages in the Ukraine don't seem to have improved much, and I've actually worked with several teens that were adopted from the Ukraine, and they also rock themselves to sleep. And the adoptive parents that I've talked to and the kids have said there's not enough workers to give the attention to infants that they need to properly develop. So if you can imagine being an infant and never being rocked to sleep and not held very often, it's tough on you developmentally. At her secondary school, a teacher named Nadieshta Agaeva says Oksana was unusual and barked all the time and moved like a dog the entire time she was there. She loved to play with the dogs, would speak to the dogs, shared her food with the dogs, or eat her own food like a dog. And she said she was trying to be a dog and maybe even thought she was a dog. And it wasn't unusual to have dogs at schools and orphanages at the time in the Ukraine. It makes me wonder if Oksana thought that the dogs had it better than her. And she thought that acting like a dog and trying to be a dog would get her treated better. Thank God for animals. They have more compassion and love than a lot of humans do. And look at the way we treat animals. 
seems, you know, unless you're talking about predators, which, you know, like tigers or something, they're just trying to eat. They don't go out to try and kill for sport. In most ways, animals treat us a lot better than we treat them, but yet we claim they're the wild ones. She only stayed there for six months and then was sent for medical tests, and she was sent to a special institute for behavioral issues, Odessa Correctional Orphanage, at age eight. Now, when you hear special institute for behavioral issues, you think of control and punishment and forcing conformity. But at Odessa, they say it's a therapeutic system, and they don't use drugs, and they don't use electroshock therapy, which I thought was going to be the first thing they would try. So that's good. They said that Oksana was always around six particular dogs, and she was in charge of feeding the dogs and also acted like them. A nurse who examined Oksana said she walked into the room and Oksana was lying on the floor like a dog and growled and barked at her and she had to get someone because she was terrified. And another orphanage employee came in and poked at her with a stick and Oksana calmed down. So when I heard poked her with a stick, I thought, oh, that's awful, but I don't know. That's how it was translated. So... I guess it could have been like, you know, kind of gave her a stick or offered her a stick or something like that. But but apparently that calmed her down. And the nurse said that she panted like a dog and let the nurse examine her. And she just panted the whole time. So that was interesting. Then a psychologist said that by the time she was 13, Oksana was rehabilitated. And the psychologist, she said that the famous footage was of Oksana at age 16 reenacting how she used to behave for a TV program that was doing, I guess, a documentary on her. She added that she felt better and more comfortable acting and being treated as a dog than she did as a human, and dogs became her family. So that's not Oksana talking, that's the psychologist. But unfortunately, after the filming, Oksana regressed and started behaving like a dog again. And that's pretty heartbreaking to think that you know, she was being filmed basically for our amusement, and it had that negative effect psychologically on her that caused her to revert to her wild ways, I guess. She was moved to another orphanage at age 18 in Baraboy. The director at Baraboy said that Oksana's memory of her former behavior is almost absent altogether, and that's a quote. So I don't know about that, but I don't know if that's good or bad or what they did to get her to stop thinking about it. Apparently her memory was absent. So Baraboy is a farm and there's about 150 residents with disabilities who all have a job. And this time they didn't give Oksana the job of taking care of the dogs. I don't know. I could kind of go either way. If your previous places that she spent time and you want her to not act like a dog, maybe don't let her run with the dogs and feed the dogs and take care of dogs the entire time. Like if you want somebody to stop being part of the bar scene, don't let them get a job as a bartender. Right. So they have her milking cows and they did an interview with her on a show called Raised Wild and Oksana says she is happy now. 
She remembers that she had to learn to walk on two legs, but doesn't remember much else except for that she was, quote, wild. She says she sometimes walks on all fours in private because it makes her feel calmer and better, and it's her way to love herself. So that's the story of Oksana. Did you have any other things that you dug up? No, not really. I uh, I mean, I saw the video of how she you know, moved and whatever. And there's this sort of screen grab of her mid bark towards the camera that popped up a bunch of different places. But as far as the information now, I didn't find really anything different than what, what we've got here. So it's another happy ending. I mean, you know, she's not a mom and married and doesn't have a family as you know, we would see it, but she says she's happy she, you know, obviously at the place she's safe, she's well taken care of in the video. She seems to be in good shape physically. So that's a win-win story, right? Yeah. I mean, it's not quite to the level of being part of uh, that choir touring around the UK, but it's a lot better than most. Definitely. Remember when we told you we were going to tell you about a boy raised by chickens? Seems crazy, right? This is the story of the bird boy of Fiji. Starts off really sad. This boy was kept under a house with chickens so often that he basically became a chicken. The boy pecks the ground for food and makes strange squawks and screeches. And he is still alive and he still lives in Fiji. I don't know a whole lot about Fiji. I wouldn't call it a third world country by any means, but it still has a rich tradition of superstition and witchcraft. So the story goes, in 1975, a boy was found abandoned in the road, alone and helpless. He was crowing and pecking at the ground, so the police were called. Feral kids, you know, that we've talked about almost always occur in the wild, but this story takes place in town. So we'll talk a little bit about imprinting. And imprinting takes place when you're very young and you pick up cues from the things around you on how to behave. Obviously, it's usually parents or siblings. If you have a dog that barks, you may have a two-year-old that barks like a dog just to have fun or whatever, but it doesn't mean that they're turning into a dog. They are able to distinguish this is how people act and this is how animals act, I believe, at at an early age. So, again... This anthropologist, Marianne Ohada, interviewed a man named only as Mr. Singh in the interview. And he said that the boy was normal from the beginning and even played with Mr. Singh's kids. But the parents left the boy under the house all day with chickens when they went to work when he was about one and a half years old. He said that he fed the kid, but said he felt powerless to help because the parents yelled at him, and eventually the boy was kept under the house all the time, not just when they were at work, but all day and all night, month after month after month. And again, I don't know much about the culture in Fiji, but it's hard to reconcile how a grown man could just let this happen without doing something about it. But again, yeah, cultural differences in terms of, you know, what's acceptable to do or what kind of power family has over each other. There was a a book I read a long time ago called Musui Story. 
And it was about this Japanese guy around, uh, I think, mid to late 1800s. And he had all these stories about basically how he was a jerk. He was kind of proud of it, it seemed like. I mean, some of it could be mistranslation, but there's a point in the story where he talks about his family trapping him in this cage in the middle of their house for a year to like try to make him, you know, stop drinking, stop going out and fighting, stop doing all these different things. How could you trap a family member like that? But, you know, it was a different time, different time and different culture. Yeah. So did it work? Uh, no. I don't think so. From his perspective, no. <laughs> and uh, his son wrote a book, too, and talked about how basically life was way better after his dad died. because His dad was just kind of like a, a loose cannon his whole life. It's sad. Yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's a cultural thing. You know, if, if I found out that your wife had locked you in a cage for, like, oh, I haven't talked to you in a month because, you know, your wife had you locked in a cage in the basement because you... You know, whatever. You wouldn't stop playing uh, Mortal Kombat or something. It's like that would be kind of horrifying. But, you know, for who knows for this time and time and place and culture, maybe it was the right decision or the only thing you could do. Now, that's not to say that locking a kid under a house is the right thing to do. To me, it's kind of like spanking your kid for hitting another kid. It's like you are sending mixed messages like you don't deal with someone else's behavior by hitting them so i'm going to deal with your behavior by hitting you mm. you know we see a lot in our prison systems i think if you treat someone like an animal that's how they're going to behave mm -hmm. and gradually this boy's behavior began to change too he began acting like a chicken he ruffled wings you know his arms and he was clucking within a year according to mr singh he thinks the boy's mother dumped him in the street because he was a problem and eventually another man named jack Pollum is interviewed in a village called fitty levy and that's the main island and he was actually still in the neighborhood where the boy was raised but the boy's parents were gone and he said the same thing that the boy acted like a chicken and he actually showed the boy's childhood home and it's on short stilts with chicken wire around the bottom because that's where they kept their chickens and jack said this is where the boy was kept eventually the boys identified as sujit kumar and he would now be in his late 30s early 40s in the National Archives of Fiji, there's a report by the Fiji Sun newspaper on April 6, 1982, and Sujit is on the front page. It says he's a chicken boy and can't be controlled because he's too dangerous, and there's a picture of him tethered to a pole, and says he's at an old people's home, is what they called it, which would now be called a retirement home, and he's tied up like an animal, and he's been there for four years. The paper says he's not mentally ill, but he's not like the other boys, and he has to be kept tied up because he's too dangerous. So, again, tied up. You know, would you rather be in a cage or would you rather be tethered to a pole? I, I, think, I think I'd rather be in a cage, but obviously this is not something we would stand for in today's society. So at this point, the boy would have been between six and eight years old, and he would have been treated like an animal basically his entire life. The retirement home is called Samabula, and a man there named Selesh Ram 
remember Sujit, and he actually grew up there too. I, I guess these retirement homes also kept abandoned children, and he was a boy at the same time as Sujit. He says that the staff tried to figure out how to control and help him, but everyone was afraid to go near him because he would grab you and lash out. And in the picture on the cover of the newspaper, he's making a claw with one of his hands. And Celeste says he was tied up most of the time, but had some space to move in what he was kept in, which was also basically a cage. And he says he was there from 1978 to 2003 or 2004. So at this point, what's that? About 25 years, he was kept tethered to a pole or kept in a cage. So you would think there's no chance of recovery for this guy. They said that when he would eat, he would tip the plate over and peck his food to eat. And he received no specialist help and basically turned from a bird boy to a bird man. But not in the, uh, not in the Michael Keaton way. Right. Um, he was tied with a bed sheet around his waist to a nail on the wall when he was kept in his cage too. So he was constantly tethered and I just can't imagine what that would be like. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine either. I've been tied up, uh, once where I was bound by my wrist and ankles. Well, we don't need to bring your love life into this. And that was enough. It's funny. It does involve a girl, but it was, uh, what did I do? I tickled her and we were all hanging out. This was like back in school and uh, our friends decided to gang up on me and get revenge for her. So she had one of those old school rectangular trampolines. So they managed to tie me up and then just let her tickle me, which, yeah, that was, you know, whatever. But it's like that feeling. I mean, that that's the only thing I have to compare it to is like the I knew I knew what they were doing. I knew they were just having fun. And you knew you were going to get out of it in 10 minutes or whatever. Yeah. But it's like, right, right. Exactly. It's like, Oh, I don't like this. Like, I know this is a joke and I, this is not good. <laughs> so I cannot imagine. Cause I found the same thing in my research that he was tied to a bed with, um, you know, basically bed sheets for 20, 25 years, something like that. One day, a woman named Elizabeth Clayton, an Australian, she was a Rotary Club president who came for a visit, and thank God she decided that she wanted to help him. The people that were there thought he was possessed. So again, we go with the uh, strange behavior is not linked to the abuse and neglect he suffered, but to a spirit. Elizabeth was a psychologist who took Sujit in and became dedicated to rehabilitating him, and she surrounded him with other people. Amazing, isn't it? You want somebody to be social, so you put him around other people. Funny how that works. Most of them were disadvantaged kids, and he began to connect to people for the first time. He interacted, but still communicated like a chicken, with clucks. So to this day, he still lives with Elizabeth. The pastor at her church thinks being kept under the house was an extreme punishment for being wild, but the punishment just made him worse. Elizabeth says the day she saw Sujit is the day both their lives changed forever. She said she saw a decrepit person and she couldn't tell if he was a child or an adult. He couldn't even sit in a chair, but she saw a spark and she felt a connection 
and she began to try to rehabilitate him. She said he clucked when food came, and he still makes that same sound when he's around food or he believes he's in danger. And for some reason, as understanding as she is, she said that she took him to an agricultural show where men were catching roosters who were clucking, and he just froze in terror. She believes that he was kept with chickens under the house because his parents thought he was an evil spirit, most likely because he has what? Epilepsy. Epilepsy. It was a dysfunctional family, and she thinks his seizures scared them, and they wanted to keep his evil spirit out of the house. I got to see a video of him in 2012, and he seemed happy, and he appeared to like human contact. Elizabeth sat next to him and put her hand on him, and he smiled and made eye contact, but he still cannot speak. But with Elizabeth's love, I'm not counting him out. Did you do any research on this story? I did. I found a couple different stories related to this and different accounts of, you know, how, how he came to be where he was. The only thing I found that was a little different was um, a few places. There's an article from The Guardian and another one, the source of which I'm blanking on. Uh, but they claimed that the reason he was locked in the chicken coop was that his parents had both died and he fell into the care of his grandparents who, rather than punishing him, put him there because they didn't know what to do with him. Wow. That's pretty sad, too. Yeah, it's weirder. It's even weirder to just be like, oh, what do we do with the kid? I don't know. Throw him in the coop. Very, very strange. Especially a grandparent because they've already done the parenting thing at least once. Right. Yeah, you would think that if anything, they would be more patient and understanding. Yeah, or they would have seen like what they did wrong, what they could have done better. Yeah. Yeah, that was about the only difference I found was, uh, you know, why he was there. But yeah, it does seem like, you know, he had it kind of rougher than most because he was imprisoned for essentially the first 30, 32 years of his life. You know, he was a little kid, then he was thrown into this chicken coop for four years, something like that. Then he was taken to this, uh, you know, assisted living type facility where he was tied, tethered, bound, you know, restricted in some manner for at least 20 years. And now his only hope is this Elizabeth Clayton, who's, you know, trying to help him. So, I mean, at least that seems to be like you were pointing out the one common thing between all these, you know, a lot of these cases seem to be made up or they have multiple variations of the stories that make it seem like it's probably just something done for attention, publicity, donations, you know, whatever, or to promote a book or somebody's career. But the ones that seem to be real, where we can find pictures of real people when they get help is when people treat them like people. And I'm not saying that, in that tone because I'm being condescending. It's it, it's a thought that <laughs> phrasing it that way occurred to me in the moment that when you treat a person like a person, they act like a person. When a person is raised by animals, they act like that animal. And if you try to keep treating them like that animal, you're sort of reinforcing that behavior. Now, you know, when you find a kid that's acting like an animal and you tie them up or lock them up, they're, they're not going to change. Like we said, we'd end with some stories of triumph. So that's it for Cryptique tonight. If you remember anything from tonight's show, I hope it's that love can conquer all and never give up on anyone, no matter what. If these guys 
can make it back into society, we can't give up on anybody. Maybe we can look back on our own childhood and focus on the positive and appreciate the things we did have instead of what we missed out on. Don't forget to check out Exploring Evil in Movie Howl either, guys. You're not off the hook yet. Remember to subscribe to Cryptique on your favorite podcast platform. If you like the show, give us a five-star review and word of mouth goes a long way. So tell all your friends about Cryptique. Hell, you can even tell people you don't like about the show. For questions, comments, and case suggestions, you can email us at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. That's C-R-Y-P-T-I-Q-U-E podcast at gmail.com.